Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I and he and will deceive many. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say. Just say what's ever given to you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So keep watch. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Then the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it's near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven. Or the sun, only the father. So be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows are at dawn. 
If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. As we continue looking at the real Jesus, and we're going to take a break after this week and head into our Christmas series, but I think this is one of the scariest passages of uh, Scripture texts I've ever read in the Bible. You look at it, and Jesus starts talking about wars. He talks, talks about earthquakes and famines, and he's just getting started. And he goes on to talk about persecution and, and beatings, brother betraying brother, father betraying child, children betraying their parents. And, and then he goes on and scares all the ladies and all the, all the husbands in the room, better not be pregnant during that day when you need to flee. He describes the days as unparalleled in all of history. And as we saw even in some of the images as the Scripture was being read today, there are some really horrible days that we've had images of, and these he describes as unparalleled. And then he goes on to say that there will even be false Christs, that, that even those who are elect, even those who know God will have to be on their guard, otherwise they could be deceived. And, and then it gets even worse, the, the terrifying signs of the darkening of the sun and the moon and the terror as the stars fall from the sky. And then Jesus returns, and he saves us. But that's not even that comforting in a sense in this passage because it says that's going to be a surprise. And it leaves us oftentimes anxious as to whether we'll be ready. As a youth and a young Christian, one of the things that scared me the most in this passage was this, this statement, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. I lost a lot of sleep over that one. I mean, how far can no-dos take you on that? Now, just to give a quick summary of this passage, this passage is much like much of the Old Testament prophecy that you see. There was a sense of this dual meaning. The Old Testament prophets, oftentimes, they gave this prophecy, in it, and it had a definite fulfillment that happened uh, sometimes within the lifetime or shortly after of the people there. And we see that happening and backed up historically, but we also see a number of those same things having a future meaning for Jesus coming back. And in this passage, it's the same thing. We actually see current historical things that happened back shortly after this time that are fulfilled by this, and yet there's also this meaning for when Jesus comes back and what we sometimes call end times or the end of the world. The meaning in that day, much of this passage was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the, when the Romans came and, and squashed, finally finished the squashing of a rebellion by sacking Jerusalem and desecrating and desolating and tearing down the temple in Jerusalem. And we know so much about that time and how it fits this because of a man named Josephus. He was a famous Jewish historian who much of his writings have survived till today. Josephus was actually part of the rebellion at that time. He was captured a year or two earlier from the time that they actually went up against Jerusalem. And uh, Titus, who was the son of the Caesar, Caligula, and later, later Caesar himself, respected Josephus so much that even though he captured him as part of the rebellion, he made him one of his advisors. So Josephus was actually there to see the horror of Jerusalem sacked. The siege went on so long, 1.1 million Jews were, were inside of Jerusalem during the siege. The famine got so great that they started dying from famine and some of them started killing others and eating them and it just went on and on and by the time the, the Romans actually broke through the wall and finished it off, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered in that moment. It was a, a, a time in history that has been unparalleled for its viciousness and awfulness. 
There's a preacher named John Ortberg, and he says this. If you want to draw a crowd to church, he says, talk about two things. The first one, he says, that will always draw a crowd is talking about sex. The second one, he says, that will draw a crowd is talking about end times. And maybe if we're going to add a third, maybe we should talk about will there be sex after the end times, but we won't talk about that today. The focus of this passage is on the word watch. If you noticed, if you include the uh, phrase, be on your guard, this phrase was used over seven times in this text. And Jesus ends this text with this exclamatory command saying, watch, be alert. Now, a common interpretation throughout history in the church, uh, even more common the last 200 years and less common before that, is that this idea of watch is that we spend time trying to figure out biblical prophecy and we compare it to historical events and we come up with these charts and graphs and numbers and comparisons and to try to figure out about when the end times are happening and when Jesus is coming back. It ends up being this really elaborate thing. And many of you have experienced this, right? I'm old enough to have uh, remember this book growing up in the 70s. There was a book by Hal Lindsey called Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody else remember that book? And along about that time, there were a whole bunch of movies that came out the designed around the rapture and the end times meant to scare young kids into accepting Jesus as their Lord. And that book came out, and I remember, uh, I remember the reactions to it in the churches. I remember being in our basement and playing on our homemade ping-pong table that was held up by these great big barrels, and the barrels were full of food just in case it was the tribulation. We had to have food. Remember that? And even during that time, I thought this was kind of... Interesting that during that time there was even this there was even this recipe for bread, a biblical bread that was scattered around. It was loosely based on I mean the Bible didn't tell you, say how much of each, but it was loosely based upon this biblical recipe for bread. And and as a kid, uh, that bread was so weighty, uh, a loaf felt like granite. It was so heavy, and I just remember thinking back then. I don't think my eating experience in the tribulation is going to be very good. And then in 1988, 88 Reasons, there was this book that gained popularity, 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And at that point, I was working, at, working my way through seminary at, at, at UPS. And I had this fantastic boss who was an unbeliever, didn't believe in the Bible, walked away from church, didn't want anything to do with it. He comes to me one day on a Monday. And he says, Ross, what do you think about this 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in a few weeks from now? And I said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. And he described his weekend. His parents had come over and they had sat down with him and they had handed him a paper with power of attorney. They handed him the keys to their safety deposit box. They handed him all the financial account numbers and records and where everything was. And at the end of it, he looked at him and said, uh, Mom and Pop, you're not that old. Why are you doing this? And they looked at him and said, well, we believe in Jesus, so we're not going to be here, but you will be. And this nice but kind of tough guy was standing with me at the belt on Monday morning, emotionally shaken by that. And obviously, unless we're all a mirage, that didn't happen, right? In 1988, Jesus didn't come back. But this guy turned around and wrote another book not quite as best-selling in 89. I have 89 reasons Jesus is coming back in 1989 because I forgot one calculation. And how many of you remember the 80s and 90s, the barcode scanner? 
coming out. And everybody was convinced that we'd have a barcode on our forehead at some point. We'd be the mark of the beast, and pretty soon it would lead to mind control. And then, and then in 2000, people thought Jesus was coming back, not because of Y2K, but because 2000 divided by 3 is 6.666.66666. It's like the perfect mark number of the beast. And so we end up with numerology analysis and we think about watching like this that goes kind of like this. Uh, Barney is a cute purple dinosaur. And because we would normally think this way, that we would have to think Roman, right? So we have to go back to Roman. We say Romans didn't have a U, so we have to translate the U's all into V's. And then if we uh, just, this would be the next natural thing to do, right? It'd be The next natural thing would be to take out all the letters that aren't Roman numerals. So you end up with this, and that translates into this. And you add that together, and it equals 666, so Barney's the Antichrist. Right? I knew. Oh, man, I just said something blasphemous. Can you believe it? No, that's what you get when you got a sound man in the second service who's bored and has an iPad app. <laughs> and you get all this other numerology. So let's just go with this. 660 is the, for, let's stick with mathematics. 660 is the approximate number of the beast. 666.666 is the precision beast. 0.666 is the millibeast. Six, uh, that's the blonde beast. I'm blonde. I'm blonde. I used to be at least. Okay, so. And here's $665.95. That's the suggested retail price of the beast. $656.95 is Walmart's suggested retail price of the beast. And Phillips 66 is the gasoline of the beast, and the 666i is the BMW of the beast. Now, in spite of the humor, watching often gets turned into this kind of thinking. And if we look at history, for the last 70 years, every single Russian president has been labeled the Antichrist. Half of the U.S. presidents have been labeled the Antichrist. Almost every Middle East leader by someone has been labeled the Antichrist. And when we back away from the humor, though, and we see it in our own lives or the lives of others, when we translate watching in this way, it leads to fear and anxiety. And we see people bunkering and hoarding and stocking up and being self, having self-protective behaviors, trying to pick a place to live or buying a cabin out in the middle of nowhere so that they have a safe place to go and have plenty of food. And while there are examples in the Bible of people preparing for disaster in this way by hoarding, you just look at Noah and Joseph for one example in the Bible. And while the Bible doesn't say you can never retreat from this, because in fact in this text, part of it that we took out because it was so long, actually Jesus says you should know when this happens, go ahead and run for the hills. The Bible doesn't say we can't run or we can't ever retreat. Yet oftentimes the bunkering and the fascination of end times is motivated out of fear. And not out of a calling of God to save people like it was for Noah and like it was for Joseph. And the reality is when it comes down to that and we get involved in it in that way, it becomes this fear, anxiety producing thing. And quite frankly, it becomes something that is sinful. I used to be fascinated with this kind of thinking, trying to match up biblical prophecy and history. And then I took this uh, college course 
where I was uh, studying for my studying for the ministry, where I where I studied all the best of the theologians. In fact, these guys are the theologians that all the expert preachers that some of some people listen to out there. These are the guys they go to to study. And I took those courses, and I came out of it, and then I and I look at the end of this passage, and I see see Jesus at the end of this passage outright rejecting watch, meaning that. When he says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And I have to ask myself, if even Jesus doesn't know how these events are going to match up and what it's going to look like, then what's the point of us defining watch, meaning trying to line up historical events with biblical prophecy, if Jesus doesn't even know? Now, is it wrong to do that? No, it's no more wrong than it is to read history for recreation or study flowers or play Angry Birds on your iPad or go for a walk unless your study of that leads to anxiety and fear and hoarding and self-protective behaviors and then it becomes sin. So what does watch mean? What does it really mean? Let's let Jesus' own words interpret that for us in this passage. And as we do, we're going to make some real-life applications. So the pivotal verse in the introduction is verse 8. And Jesus is describing these wars and these rumors of wars and all these awful things that are about to happen. And he says this, These are the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. Now, that's an interesting phrase when it comes to our faith. Now, for those of you who uh, were at the Ashland uh, Seminary event with Donald Miller, hosted at the Big Vineyard a little over a week ago, sorry, you're going to hear an illustration again. I'm going to borrow one from there, okay? But Donald Miller is not, as a guy who says, I'm not a theologian. I am a guy who studies story. And he says every great story, every great movie, almost almost everyone, because most of them follow this format, end up having what's called in literary world an Act 3 climax. An Act 3 climax is when everything, all the tension that's going on, the personal tension, the interpersonal tension, the political tension, the danger, all of the tension in the movie is relieved in a moment. Star Wars. The old Star Wars movies, since probably all of us have seen it, where's the Act 3 climax? It's when Luke is running down that chute and he drops the bomb down that hole and you see him going up, flying off one way, everybody cheering as the Death Star starts to explode and Darth Vader, the evil nemesis, starts to tuck his tail and flee the other way. That's the Act 3 climax. Now here's the problem. A lot of us look to our faith and our decision to follow Jesus initially as the Act 3 climax. We expect our decision to follow Jesus as Lord is going to resolve all the tension. In fact, some of you here who have not made a a decision to follow Christ yet, who are still wrestling with that decision, one of your wrestling points is that you've watched people who've become Christian. You see there's still tension in their life. There's still things unresolved, and that's been an excuse for you to not declare faith in Jesus. But Jesus is saying here, that coming to follow Him as Lord is not the Act 3 climax. That's the beginning of birth pains, of redemption becoming a reality in our life. It's his, when He comes back is the Act 3 climax. Until then, the tension's not resolved. 
and we're still going to experience. But let's drill deeper, drill deeper in this. Let's, let's go even a little further, and let's just ask the basic question we should always ask when we're studying the Bible. What's the context of this passage? What has Jesus been, as we've looked at this over the last few weeks, what has Jesus been consistently doing with his disciples, and he continues to do in this passage? And when we answer that question, Jesus has been consistently reality-checking his disciples about what's to come in the future that they don't understand. He's been consistently coming back to them saying, the future is going to hold difficulty. I am going to be persecuted. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. He's saying that all the time. And that's Jesus is continuing to do that here. And as we've talked about before in the previous weeks, he's not even concerned that they don't understand everything. He's not rebuking them for not getting that because he recognizes that what's about to happen is so far out of their frame of reference that there's no way they will understand it fully until after it's done. Right? And that's essentially what Jesus is doing right in this passage today. He's saying these are all the difficult things that will happen and no one will know the day or the hour. No one will fully recognize it. So what is Jesus really trying to do in all these interactions with the disciples. Simply this. Jesus is being a great coach. He's being a great leader, a great friend. He's helping prepare them to finish well, to cross the finish line with the same focus and passion that they had at the beginning, to persevere. And isn't that hard in life to finish well? The older you get, the more difficult you know it is to finish life well. And we all know it's important. We've got great examples, right? Michael Phelps, 2008, 2012, right? He wins the 200 butterfly in 2008 because why? He took one extra stroke in the close to push into the end and beat the guy out by a matter of less than, less than a half a second, right? And the other guy coasted in. 2012, he runs the same race and he loses by five one-hundredths of a second because he coasted and the other guy took the extra stroke, right? But let's bring it back to our own lives a little closer. How many of you observed your parents or maybe others age? And as they they age, they, they, they become a little bit more stuck, a little bit more crotchety, a little bit more... The tiredness of life, the pain of life, the disillusionment of life the battering of life makes them start to give up and coast. Or have you ever had a boss uh, or watched a boss who retired or left or got promoted, whatever, left the position for whatever reason? They had tremendous credibility, but they didn't use it deliberately to solve a problem that they could have easily solved because of their credibility. Instead, they were more concerned about their own good feeling and people's good view of them and left and let the new people inherit the big problem, which was much much more difficult to solve. I remember working with a church, consulting with a church. The pastor had been there 30 years, had enormous credibility, and there were some real significant problems causing that church to be in decline and not grow. And they were just under the surface. But this guy had the credibility and respect of everybody. He could have gotten up and he could have solved the problem, and there probably would have been conflict for a few weeks, maybe a year at the most, and it would have been resolved, and this church would have been great. Instead, he left and left it for the new guy. And it took five or six years of major conflict It almost cost this new guy his emotional health and his family's emotional health because he didn't, his predecessor didn't finish 
well. We see the example in the Bible too, King David. Have you ever noticed the end of King David's life? He looks over to Solomon on his deathbed and says, Solomon, here are some things I left undone. I want you to do them. And one of them was to go kill Joab, his commander-in-chief of his army, because Joab throughout King David's reign, if you read the story, was consistently undermining David, even to the point of murdering people. But David, for whatever reason, we don't know, probably lots of insecurity, maybe because of family ties, whatever, refused to deal with it. Instead of him finishing well and dealing with it, he leaves it to Solomon and says, go kill him and deal with it. He's a bad guy. He deserves it. What does it take to finish well? That's really what Jesus is giving us a glimpse of in this passage. And in the passage, in his own words, he says it basically starts with a clarity of mission. Verses 9 and 2 are basically preceded saying, when every, basically summarize it, when, when everything is out of control, when you're in a terrifying place, when you're brought before people who hold you in the palm of your hand and could make things really great or really miserable for you, when life is out of control and, and there's famine, there's economic downturn, there's problems, when you can't control life, Jesus' whole purpose, he says, for us in that is mission. It says, you will be handed over. The text says, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Now, it doesn't say, when you're before them, oh, by the way, why don't you try to be a witness? If you actually distill out all the parenthetical stuff in that statement, the sentence would read like this, you will be handed over as witnesses. There's intentionality on God's part in bringing us into difficult situations. In verse 10 it goes on, it says, And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. There's a sense of this that God is carrying you through this that when everything's out of control and the experience around us, whatever we're experiencing, whether it's people against us or situations or circumstances, it's out of control that there's a sense of Him and His Spirit carrying this, much like Jesus, as we talked about two, three weeks ago when He was before Pilate. Remember? Pilate says to him, Why are you not defending yourself? Do you not realize I have authority to condemn you or to release you? And what does Jesus say to him? He says, you would have no authority if it were not given you by God, by me. And there's this sense that God has us in those places. And sometimes if we see those situations as terrifying, we're so tempted to self-protect, to hoard, to bunker, to back away. But if we see it as God's mission, then it's very different. How many of you are, are, are war, war movie buffs? Do I see any ladies' hands? A few ladies? Okay. Okay, so how many times have you ever seen in a war movie where you've got the general or the commander or whatever say to all of his troops right before the most dangerous part of the mission, he gets them up, he lines them all up, and he says, okay, so I've been through stuff like this before. Here's what's going to happen. This is going to be terrifying. This is going to be difficult. Everybody says it's against all the odds. Most of us probably won't come back alive. Whoever wants to come with me, step forward. I won't hold it against anyone if you don't want to come. Just make a decision. That's essentially what Jesus is doing 
in this passage. He's making this invitation to mission, a mission that he's already faced, that he knows how hard this kind of stuff is, and he's telling us about it and giving us the option of stepping forward or staying behind. And Jesus gives us a sharp and clear story to illustrate this further later. In verse 34, it says, It's like a man going away. Now, this man is Jesus, right? It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. So, Jesus has put us in charge. That's amazing, isn't it? And there's this, there's this element in there that really does speak to leadership in a legitimate way. He, he says the doorkeeper in this, in this culture, we don't really understand it. The closest could be, the closest we could understand would be if, if you've ever been in a high-rise condominium with security where you have to enter through security and that security, uh, this may not be all your case if you've been in there, but that, that security person is also in charge of the whole complex. If there's a need, it goes to them and they tell people what to do, right? That's the closest that we can come to in the doorkeeper. So there is this element in there that Jesus is saying, yes, there's leadership put in, put in place to, to watch and to stay alert and to lead the vision and to do that. But, but he says he has assigned a task to each of us. All of us are held accountable to be alert, to watch. And there's intentionality on God's part in bringing each of us together as a church community here called Quest that he wants each of us to be a part of his mission through this body, in this community. It's not just one. It's not just a few. It's all of us. And Jesus is asking us to accept responsibility for that mission. There's no better reason, no more right reason to choose to be a part of a church than to accept that responsibility for mission. It's not about getting our needs met first and foremost. But he says, keep watch for what? Well, if we go back and break it down, it says each servant in their own areas. So in your work, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your volunteer service here, keep watch for what? Watch for God bringing people before you that he wants you to speak to, that he wants you to care for that He wants you to minister to, that He wants you to invite by the power of His Spirit that is carrying you wrong. Even if they are the most resistant, annoying person at work, if God's bringing them before you by His Spirit to invite, to care, to love, to be Jesus' representative. Second, finishing well, requires both clarity of cost and clarity of support. One of the most devastating things to our passion in life is being blindsided, isn't it? Can you remember a relationship? Can you think of a time in your own life where someone you trusted blindsided you with evil, with sinning against you, with hurting, with undermining you? What did it feel like? How did it affect your hope? And your passion. Did you want to angrily push them away and, 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 and make them pay? Or, or did you just want to give up and walk away and hide? Some of you wanted to give up and walk away and hide to the point that you thought of suicide at that point in your life. And you can remember that time. How did that impact your faith when that happened? Now, 
I know this is a big switch. Change, change thoughts from there. I want you to think of another time when you were going to go through something really, really hard, but somebody close to you said, this is what it's going to be like. This is going to be really difficult. These types of things are going to happen. What was the difference in your hope? What was the difference in your faith? What was the difference in your passion going through that experience? Jesus, in his compassion and his support of us, says, I have told you everything ahead of time. Not specifically, but generally. It's a little bit like if you're a veteran here, you know this, but all of us have heard the stories. A lot of us have heard the stories, probably all of us have heard the stories about how difficult boot camp is or how difficult special forces training is, right? And you can be told all about that, right? But when you went through boot camp, if you're a veteran here, you probably walked out the other side going, I'm glad I knew that, but I did not expect this and I did not expect it to be this, right? There's so many things that change in that process. And why does Jesus tell us the stuff ahead of time? It's not just so that we'll know the cost, but it's so that we will know his compassionate thoughtfulness towards us. That we'll know his intent for us in experiencing this. Verse 13, his intent is that we stand firm and be saved. Verse 11, his intent is that even when we're totally out of our comfort zone, when we're totally out of our element, when we have nothing to say that we could think of, or no power to solve a situation, that even then his spirit will be there to give us the words to carry us through. He's speaking to us of the cost and he's speaking to us of the support that he's going to give to us. And doesn't that help us finish well when we're facing something hard? Finally, finishing well requires clarity of hope. The end result of this whole thing is that we will all be saved and many others. The end result of this thing is that one day we'll be past the birth pains of redemption into the fullness of being redeemed. The reality of our hope is that the pain of our own sin, the pain of our own, own unhealthiness and those around us will one day be gone. Everyone and the earth itself will be restored to perfection and beauty and harmony and wholeness. There is an Act 3 climax. The end of the story is good. But we miss the assurance and the blessing of God even in these words when you spend time on your own needs, focusing on your fear and the difficulties and letting those waylay you from the real mission, the real watchfulness, the real heart of God. Now, some of you here have even been avoiding getting into the race. You've avoided making that full-on commitment, that all-in commitment to Jesus. And you've been using that lack of an Act 3 climax as an excuse, the pain in other people's lives, the problem of evil, the fact that if God doesn't want to clean these people up more than that, then why should I follow Him? But salvation is the beginning of birth pains, not the Act 3 climax. So the question is, will you be found waiting and watching and making excuses when Jesus comes back, or will you actually be in the game? And Jesus is inviting you to make that decision today. And there's some who you've been in the race and you're struggling with temptation to no longer be in it. Not that you're going to forsake your faith, but you're just, just going to coast. And it's because we look at words like, all men will hate you because of me in verse 13. And, and we essentially give up on being witnesses because we go, man, if people are that resistant and that hard, how can, 
how can little old me and my testimony make a difference? How can my life change anybody? And we get caught in this tribulation thinking and we focus more on the anxiety, more on the fear, more on the difficulty than we focus on the hope. We focus more on the resistance of people around us instead of the power of the Holy Spirit to break through and change that resistance and change those lives. And the question is, will we run the race well and finish well? And it's easy to postpone faithfulness, especially when we focus on the difficult and it becomes self-focused. And the questions this text asks over and over again to us is, when Jesus comes, will you be found watching the right thing? Will you be watching for the Antichrist or will you be watching who God is asking you to bring his hope to so they'll be saved? Will you be watching for the moments the Holy Spirit brings people to you each day to pray for, not just pray for, to actually stop and pray with at the moment, to care for them, to speak about your faith and witness to them, to respond to those moments? Will you be watching the right things? Or will we be living in a self-protection and fear, more concerned about avoiding the difficult things, Jesus says, that will surely happen than we are focused on being empowered by His Spirit to overcome the difficulty and to be His witnesses. You see, Jesus is inviting us to stop looking for the Antichrist, to stop trying to figure out who the beast is, to stop trying to figure out when the tribulation is going to happen, and instead to watch eagerly with great expectation for His Spirit each and every day to lead us, to bring people before us who we have the opportunity to be His touch to that day. And that's what watching means. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. I want to finish well. I know all of us want to finish well. And that requires an intentional alertness, an intentional engagement on a daily basis, expecting to be involved in the mission of God, knowing the cost, but expecting the support expecting Him to come through and to be there even when we are out of our element and uncomfortable and expecting that one day He will return and all the pains of childbirth, all the pains of this world will be removed. Today, I want to invite those of you who have not made the decision to follow Jesus, are not all in. You've been tipping your toe, dipping your toe in and considering it, and that's great. We, if you're not ready to make this decision, you are so welcome to stay here and seek with us. We want you to be here. We want to trust that God will lead you and convince you when you're ready. But some of you are ready. You've just been using excuses to not make that final step. And God's inviting you to make that final step today. Let's just uh, close and pray, and, 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 and maybe all of us pray. Just I don't do this very often, but I'm going to pray, and would you pray after me? And if you're here and wanting to make that decision, you can feel free to pray it because other people around you will be. You won't be isolated. But if you make the decision to follow Christ today, would you come and talk to me or one of the other pastors or somebody else and just confess that, tell us that that decision is there. So would you pray and just pray after me? Lord, I repent today of my sin. Lord, I repent of the arrogance of wanting to be in control. And I give you complete control today. I ask for your forgiveness. 
I ask for your spirit to come and indwell me and fill me. I ask for you to lead me and help me finish well this race. In Jesus' name. The rest of you, I want to ask this question, and all of us, I can ask this question too. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you to watch and be responsive to how he wants to help you to help lead someone to him? Most of you probably have a name that pops into mind, a coworker that pops into mind, somebody that pops into mind. Who are those people that God has put in your path that he wants you to minister to? Then I want you to ask God, what's getting in the way? Ask him to just speak to you and speak to your heart. Just say, God, what's, what's getting in the way of me being alert? What's getting in the way of me watching well for what you're doing each day? Lord, I ask that you would increase our sensitivity, our intentionality of looking for you each day and looking for how you're going to accomplish your mission through us each day. Lord, we glorify you as our Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to finish well. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.